Hello and welcome to Killing Time, a podcast about conflicts and battles that have bent the arc of history. your host, Chip Wagar. Thanks for joining me for this military history podcast series, uh, and I hope you're really going to like it. Since you're joining us on the introductory or the very first episode of Killing Time, I'd like to take a moment to introduce the concept and the format of this series. Killing Time is about military history, but it's for the non-military listener who's interested in the history of conflicts that change the world. So we'll be concentrating on about 20 major conflicts and battles over the last three centuries, between the years 1645 and the Battle of Nasby in the English Civil War, to 1942 and the Battle of Midway in World War II. The battles the series will cover all occurred during a conflict, usually a major war. And at least for the dynasties, nations, or societies that were engaged in the conflict, it was probably an existential war, literally a war for their existence. Most of the battles marked a decisive turning point in that conflict, if not the turning point of the war. As we discuss each decisive battle, I'll set the stage by giving some background on the conflict itself the armies and their leaders, before we get into the details of the battle itself. We'll also discuss the legacy or impact the battle had on the conflict, the combatants, and the course of history generally. Another thing you should know is that we have a website that you can visit as well that will um, introduce you to the podcast and also as to each episode as we go along. We'll have um, some images, uh, a little synopsis of the battle or campaign that we're going to be talking about. And also, and most importantly, we'll have at least one map on there that will help you visualize the campaign that we're going to talk about. Maps are very important in military history, and so um, uh, that will be on our website as well, www. Dot killingtimepodcast.com. Check it out. Now, we're not going to necessarily take these battles and conflicts in chronological order. For instance, I thought since this initial podcast was recorded in the centennial year of the outbreak of the First World War, we would begin with one of the decisive battles of that era, the Battle of Tannenberg. <laughs> What if I were to tell you that in one month's time, the United States would be at war with Russia and China? You'd probably think I was crazy. You probably couldn't imagine going about your normal daily life, maybe, it being in the summertime, going on vacation. You'd think that 
there was no possible way that the United States would be involved in a major world war in just a month. But imagine in July of 2014 when the Malaysian airliner was shot down in the Ukraine. Imagine if, as that crisis grew and escalated, that instead of just economic sanctions, there was the increasing use of military force. One thing led to another until all-out war broke out, let's say, between Russia and the Ukraine. And that that war shortly pulled in the European Union. And that China thought this would be a good opportunity to invade and annex Taiwan and also some Japanese islands that they've been laying claim to for a number of years. And that that triggered the alliance with the United States. And pretty soon, we were all at war. And in a deadly war to the finish. If you think that's incredible, if you reflect for a moment on the impact, if that were true, that it would have on your life, your family's life, your friends, everyone you know, you might have an idea how the people of Europe felt in August of 1914. Because that's pretty much what happened when the First World War began. At one moment in July of 1914, most people were on summer vacation or going about their normal lives, and a massive war that would engulf their nation and their world was the last thing on their minds. And yet, in a space of 30 days, or a little more than 30 days, Germany Austria, and Austria-Hungary found themselves at war with Russia, France, Britain, and Belgium. And the First World War had begun. Now, the battle that we're going to talk about occurred in what is today modern-day Poland. In fact, near the city of Olsten. But in August of 1914, the town nearest where the major battle took place was called Allenstein, and it was located in East Prussia. Because at that time, Poland didn't exist as a country. It had disappeared from the map of Europe in the mid-18th century and still had not surfaced again. So its territory was held by either Russia, Austria, or Germany. Germany had renamed, or Prussia had renamed, the area of Poland that it took from the partitions as East Prussia. And it had been colonized and settled by Germans over the next 100 years. The territory of East Prussia belonged to Prussia, and Prussia was the most dominant of the German states that formed the German Empire in 1914. This was sacred territory, and that would have an impact on a lot of the events that we're going to talk about today. Now, to understand what's going to happen, we have to know a little bit about the war plans of the major players in World War I at the outbreak of the war. Of most importance to this battle is Germany's war plan. Germany found itself between two major great powers on either side of its territory. To the west was France, 
and to the east was Russia. And German military planners and thinkers in the years leading up to World War I worried about being crushed between the two of them and what to do about it. One of their chief of staff, a man by the name of von Schlieffen, had conceived in the late 1800s after the alliance with France and Russia had become a fact, and we'll talk more about that in a minute, he had conceived a plan in which Germany would throw its entire weight, or nearly its entire weight, about 90% of its military force against France in the opening 40 days of the war. During that period of time, only 10% of its army would face Russia on the belief that it would take Russia six weeks or more to mobilize its vast army and move it to the frontiers. That was probably true in the 1890s, but in 1914 that would prove to be a very bad calculation, as we'll see. In any event, that was the plan. So on August 1st, Germany began mobilizing and moving 90% of its army toward the French frontier and the Belgian frontier to begin the Schlieffen plan in France, while one army, the 8th Army, moved into East Prussia to guard against a Russian invasion. A final army, the German 9th Army, was stationed in the middle of the country to go to the aid of whichever army needed it the most. And that would be a hard decision to make in the days to come for German leaders. It was a risky plan, a very risky plan, and it failed. But its failure did not end the war with a German defeat, as it should have. And I'll explain why I say that. On August 8th of 1892, France and Russia entered into a military convention and the purpose of that convention was to protect both of them against an attack above all by Germany, but also by Austria, supported by Germany in the case of Russia, or Italy, supported by Germany in the case of France. In the event that there was an attack by Germany, and by August 4th there was no question about that, then Article 3 of the convention obligated France to employ no less than 1,300,000 men against Germany in the West. And Russia had committed to mobilize and throw 800,000 men against Germany in the East. The clear purpose of this convention was to take maximum advantage of the two-front war situation that Germany would find herself in and quickly bring the war to an end with a German defeat. This was a good plan that, in the end, was carried out for the most part by France, but not by Russia. In August of 1914, the Russian army was not as slow to mobilize or move as von Schlieffen had thought back in the late 1890s. However, Germany's present chief of staff and leader, Helmut von Molke, had not made any adjustment to the master plan conceived a couple of decades before. And so one of the unpleasant realities that Germany had to face very quickly in the war was the fact that Russia had laid 
a tremendous amount of rail and track leading right up to the German borders and Austrian borders with the help of French loans, and that what von Schlieffen had thought would be six weeks before Russian soldiers would set foot on, or could set foot on German soil, shrank to only two. Furthermore, Russia's two armies that it was going to employ in this campaign, as it turned out, were vast armies compared to the German Eighth Army. The German Eighth Army consisted of about 150,000 men. Um, There were a number of small garrisons and fortresses uh, located in East Prussia, but the German Field Army was about 150,000 men, and it was uh, commanded by an older general, although not as old as some of the generals uh, in that we're going to talk about. Um, his name was Maximilian von Prittwitz. The Russians, by contrast, had two armies, either one of which was much larger than the Eighth Army. The Russian Second Army, which is going to be at the center of the Battle of Tannenberg, itself consisted of 230,000 men. It was commanded by a very tragic figure whose name, Alexander Samsonov. A second Russian army was even larger than that, and it was commanded by a Russian general with a German-sounding name. His name was Paul von Rennenkampf. And the Russian first army he commanded had almost a half a million men. Now remember, these two armies which together total around 800,000 men, are going to face one German army of 150,000. And yet, unbelievably, not only do the Germans win this battle, but they absolutely crush both Russian armies. The story of how they did this is one of the great military stories in history, It is also very significant in the course of the war because by failing to win the Battle of Tannenberg or win the invasion of Prussia, the Russian army didn't hold up its end of the bargain while 90% of the German army was occupied against France. Now, in military history, maps are really an essential. If you want to really understand how a battle developed and was resolved, you really need a lot of maps to follow the course of the different armies, especially by the time the 20th century rolls around. And armies involve enormous numbers of people and enormous uh, spatial areas. But I bet you probably don't have a map in front of you. And so I'm going to do my best to describe the terrain uh, and the map that you need to know as best I can so that you can maybe picture it in your head uh, and follow along. So imagine for a moment you have a rectangular map in front of you, long side across. And the first Russian army that I told you about 
that of Alexander Samsonov, is going to come into this map, into this picture, in the southeast corner, that is to say, the lower right-hand corner. Samsonov's army of over 230,000 men, soldiers, cavalry, and artillery is going to enter from the bottom of the page to the right. The second, or actually the first Russian army, uh, commanded by Renenkampf of over 400,000, is going to enter at the top right-hand corner of the map. And together they're going to work toward the middle of the map as if forming an arrow where they're going to converge. And at that point, there will be a mass of two Russian armies totaling some 800,000 cavalry, infantry, and artillery, confronting a single German army of 150,000. That would have been a true Russian steamroller, a basically unstoppable force for an army of 150,000 opposing it, even considering all the advantages that the Germans had in East Prussia. That was the Russian plan, and it was a good one. Had it been executed properly, the Russians would have had an excellent chance of defeating the 8th Army within the 40-day window and making a good run on Berlin, perhaps even capturing Berlin before the reinforcements from the West could have stopped it. So you can see the dilemma that the German 8th Army was in. General Pritwitz decided to take on the army that was actually in Prussia. And so he moved quickly, as quickly as he could, to the east to confront Renenkamp's army, and if not defeat him, at least slow him down and play for time. Now the first unit out in front of uh, Pritwitz's army was a corps commanded by General Hermann von Francois. Interesting that he had a French name right down to the Sedilla under the sea. But Francois is a very aggressive general that has fought in the War of 1870 uh, and has a lot of experience and um, becomes famous in our story for reasons that you'll here as we go along. You'll want to remember his name. He's a very good general. In any event, General von Francois actually engages an advance column of the Russian First Army around the town of Stalu-Ponen. And in this battle, he does rather well. He actually surprises the Russians and breaks a Russian division in a frontal assault that sustained some 3,000 casualties, and Francois even takes about 5,000 prisoners, almost the entire Russian 105th Regiment. But it's at this moment in time that Pritwitz learns that the second army, the second Russian army commanded by Samsonov, has now just entered Prussia as well, far to the south in that south eastern corner of the map. And now he's really facing a dilemma. On the one hand, he can stay where he is and attempt to continue to delay and slow down Renenkamp's advancing army. Or he can retreat 
which would give both Russian armies essentially an unhindered straight shot at Berlin and connecting at the point of the arrow in the middle of the map. When Samsonov arrives at that center of the map, if you will, if Pritwitz is still engaged with Renenkampf, Samsonov is going to be given a choice of either turning to his right and joining in the attack now on the rear of the 8th Army while it's fixed in position by the Russian 1st Army and basically crushed between the two of them. On the other hand, if Pritwitz retreats, he will allow these two large armies to join together into a gigantic juggernaut that nobody will be able to stop. Now I need to talk a little bit about the terrain of East Prussia because transportation is one of the reasons why the Russian army fails in its campaign despite its overwhelming numbers. And two important points you have to know. One is the fact that while the Russians were able to mobilize far more quickly than expected at their frontiers, once they crossed into Germany, they could no longer use trains and the rail because the gauge of the Russian rails was wider and different than German train tracks. So that meant that the two Russian armies had to advance on foot, old-fashioned and slow. This would not be the case with the Germans, however, who could and did make use of a very extensive rail network that shuttled Francois' first corps decisively in the battle to come. The second terrain thing you have to know about is in the arrowhead that these, the converging lines of these two armies would form, in between them is an area known as the Missourian Lakes, which is covered with many lakes, something like the terrain around Minnesota and Wisconsin. Dozens of small and some very large lakes, very low land, much of it swampy, and what isn't swampy is thick woods with tiny villages and very, very primitive ox cart level roads. So this would impede any large army from going south if you're Renincom or north for Samsonov. And what this means is for a week or so, the two Russian armies are separated by this terrain and can be attacked one at a time. Now, after Francois' success at Stalupponen, he pursued the retreating Russian advance column for some 15 miles until he ran into Russian artillery fire, which caused him to reluctantly retreat. In the meantime, Pritwich had brought up the rest of the 8th Army and braced itself for a battle around the town of Gumbinin. And the Battle of Gumbinin occurs three days later, on August the 20th. And this is the first moment when two large armies are fully engaged for the very first time on the Eastern Front. The battle is basically a frontal attack battle between the two, the Russian 1st Army and the German 8th Army. And then it's fought over the course of the day to a bloody standstill. Now the battle actually begins on August 19th when 
Russian cavalry first comes across a German infantry regiment outside of uh, Gumbinen. And after a sharp exchange, the Russians dig in and bring up their artillery to continue uh, the battle. With Francois egging him on, Pritzwitz allows Francois to move his first corps forward, uh, reinforced by a cavalry division. And at four o'clock in the morning, Francois's corps opens up on the Russian 28th Division, which begins the battle in earnest. A back-and-forth battle follows, with the Germans advancing only to be met by another Russian division that arrives, and heavy artillery fire, which turns the battle on the right flank of Renenkampf and the left flank of Pritwitz into essentially a stalemate. At 8 o'clock in the morning, some four hours later, the right flank becomes engaged with the Russians. This attack is led by another very able and famous German general, August Mackensund. Mackensund's Third Corps attacks on the southern flank of the Russians, but having been alerted to the presence of the German army earlier in the day, the Russians in this area expected the German attack and had dug in and brought up their heavy artillery. So at first, Mackensen's assault went well, but once they came within range of artillery fire, the Russians opened up and then began advancing and turning Mackensen's flank, forcing Mackensen to retreat uh, in some disorder and leaving 6,000 German prisoners in Russian hands. As Mackensen gave way, Pritwitz was aghast at the sight of panicked German soldiers streaming mob-like to the rear. He then ordered uh, von Francois to break off the battle and pull back. That was probably the lowest moment for the Germans in the Battle of Tannenberg, and the panic that broke out in Pritwitz and his much of his staff was conveyed to the chief of staff of the German armies, Helmut von Molke, who was stationed in Koblenz, far to the west in Germany, watching the main action in the French theater. Molke was greatly disturbed by the news he got from Pritwitz and made two decisions. One was to send additional reinforcements, two corps and some cavalry, to the east from the Western Front, which weakened his campaign in France, and some people think was one of the reasons why the ensuing Battle of the Marne was lost. In any event, these reinforcements never arrived in time to take part in the Battle of Tannenberg, so they only weakened the Western Front. The second decision he made was to replace Pritwitz with Paul von Hindenburg, and assigned to him for his chief of staff, Eric von Ludendorff. Now, these two generals were to make their name in the Battle of Tannenberg, as we'll see, but are rock stars in military and political history in the case of von Hindenburg. Hindenburg went on to become eventually the uh, supreme commander of the German uh, war machine and was actually the chief of staff of the German army when the armistice uh, occurred in 1918. He was almost never beaten in battle, and 
went on later to become president of Germany for two terms. Uh, He died in office as president of, of Germany, and he was the president who appointed Adolf Hitler chancellor in 1933. It is Hindenburg for whom the famous Zeppelin that exploded in New Jersey was named. Hindenburg is the more famous of the two, but his assistant, Erich von Ludendorff, is also one of the most important and famous generals in World War I and in world military history. A brilliant, plant, strategic and tactical operational planner and logistician, he really did the heavy lifting of the planning of Hindenburg's strategic campaigns. The two of them formed an almost unbeatable team, and it was these two who were sped to the Eastern Front to replace Pritwitz by Mulkey. Now, to those who, again, are not military people, I want to talk a little bit about army organizations so that you can understand the chess pieces which are about to be moved around on the board of East Prussia and pull off one of the most amazing battle victories of all time. Uh, We've talked about armies, but when I say the German army or the Russian army, I would be referring to the entire German army or the entire Russian army, all of their various subparts, all of the soldiers, artillery, cavalry, officers, staff, and so forth put together. In this case, the German army, as we've already talked about, 90% of it was located on the Western Front, and only 10% of it was located here in East Prussia. Then we, the next group down from that are what are called field armies. Uh, and as we've already seen in Germany, uh, there were nine field armies. The 8th Army is the one we've been talking about that's located in East Prussia. And a field army is generally commanded by a general, probably a lieutenant general, one of the highest grades of general officer, and usually consists of several corps and usually at least 80,000 men or up. Now, we've talked about the 8th Army having 150,000 soldiers, and that's a good-sized army. Uh, General Rennenkampf, as we've already discussed, had far more than that. So there's no exact numbers here, but uh, that's the next organizational group down from the army as a whole. Now, the field army, as we've just said, is in turn divided into corps, uh, and there may be several corps uh, that make up uh, the field army. These are, again, usually commanded by a very high general officer, a lieutenant general. Uh, And a corps, by definition, contains two or more divisions, and usually uh, probably around 50,000, 40,000, 50,000 soldiers uh, at a minimum. A division is the next group down from a corps, usually commanded by a major general, Divisions consist generally of around 20,000 soldiers and are the last, uh, smallest, what we call combined arms group. In other words, a division may contain cavalry, 
artillery and infantry in the First World War. Uh, but smaller groupings generally are just infantry or just cavalry or uh, artillery. The next group uh, on the scale would be uh, what is known as a brigade, or sometimes uh, in older terminology was called a regiment. Uh, divisions generally are made up of three or four brigades at a minimum. And the brigades are generally commanded by a colonel or a brigadier general and contain between three and 5,000 soldiers. These, in turn, are made up of battalions. They may be 10 or 15 battalions of 300 to 1,300 soldiers, usually commanded by a lieutenant colonel. Then we get down to companies, which are generally between 80 and 150, and they're commanded usually by a captain or major, then down to platoons, squads, and so forth. So that's the general nature of how an army is divided up. And this is generally true with some variations among all of the armies of the major powers of the world, uh, at least at that time. Now, when Hindenburg and Ludendorff arrived in East Prussia on August the 23rd, the German army was making its way westward upon the orders of General Pritwitz, whose idea it was to withdraw quite far west behind the Vistula River in Prussia, which would have allowed the two Russian armies to meet at the uh, point of the arrow and combine into this force of 800,000 uh, to confront the Eighth Army. Hindenburg and Ludendorff ordered the retreat to stop and took a very short time in sizing up the situation and deciding upon a very bold and risky plan. In fact, one of the most amazing things about their arrival is how quickly they took control of the situation and came up with what turned out to be a masterstroke in dealing with the situation. Now, they were aided in this regard by Pritzwitz's uh, chief of staff, Colonel Max Hoffman, who was actually chief of operations, who was very familiar with this territory and had been thinking about uh, a plan uh, to deal with the situation that he discussed with Hindenburg and Ludendorff upon arrival. And this is one of the reasons why they were so quickly able to decide upon a plan, because uh, Colonel Hoffman had been thinking about it for a couple of days before they arrived. Now, the general plan was quite remarkable and simple. The advancing army under Renenkamp, it had been discovered, intended to move more or less in a straight westerly direction rather than turning in a southwesterly direction which would more quickly allow the two Russian armies to meet and combine. Instead, Renenkampf intended to go due west toward Königsberg and this was discovered when a dead Russian officer at the Battle of Gumbinin 
had Renenkampf's plans in his pocket, and they were found by the Germans. Hindenburg himself recalled that the Russian officer had orders in his pocket that confirmed Renenkampf's plan of moving due west instead of to the southwest. Now this was very important because it would have it would it kept the two armies uh, separated for longer than would otherwise have been the case, and it allowed the Germans to make their plans knowing fairly certainly what at least one of the Russian armies was going to do. Now General Renenkampf had just fought a very heated battle at Gumbinen and while it was the Germans who left the battlefield in defeat, his own army had taken something of a mauling, and for the next few days, it was his plan to rest his army, reorganize and refit them for a further advance westward, assuming that he would encounter the Eighth Army yet again uh, as he moved in that direction. That was fine with him, because after all, he'd already beaten the Eighth Army once and assumed with his vastly superior forces that it was just a matter of pushing forward and continuously engaging the Eighth Army until he backed them right up against uh, Berlin. Furthermore, with Samsonov moving up from the southeast, there was a good chance that They would trap the 8th Army between their two armies, or Samsonov could take a left turn and essentially walk into Berlin with almost nothing to stop him. So it was a very nice situation that the Russians were contemplating, and and Rennenkampf saw no need uh, to hurry the process at all, and that would be a very grave error on his part. Samsonov, on the other hand, had, on August the 22nd, the day before Hindenburg and Ludendorff actually arrived, had come into contact with von Scholz's 20th Corps. Now, you remember that's a a significant group of soldiers, probably 50 to 60,000 of them. And he had come into contact with this uh, corps around the city of Tannenberg. Between the 23rd and the 26th of August, Samsonov kept up the pressure on the German 20th Corps and began pushing it back toward the west, making fairly steady progress. Von Scholz, in his communications back to Hindenburg and Ludendorff, asked for help and reinforcements because he was unable to stop the steady advance of the Russians uh, in his area, and indeed help was going to arrive in a major way. The most significant maneuver was involved uh, von Francois's first corps, which, as you may remember, was at the very top of the picture on the very left flank of the German Eighth Army. And what the plan that Hoffman and Hindenburg and Ludendorff conceived was to attempt to fool Rennenkampf 
by putting just a very thin screen of cavalry out in front of him that would occasionally uh, make themselves seen and known and uh, harass Rennenkampf's pickets and otherwise distract him into believing that the Eighth Army was just in front of him behind the cavalry. In reality, there would be nothing behind the cavalry. And that was the big gamble, that Rennenkampf would either not move or would move extremely slowly, believing that he needed to advance cautiously against the Eighth Army. In the meantime, von Francois' entire First Corps was put on trains and moved all the way from the left flank to the edge of the right flank of the German army, unbeknownst to either Rennenkamp or Samsonov. And Francois' troops basically got off the train and began moving forward and maneuvering themselves into a position on the right flank of von Scholz's 20th Corps, who, as I mentioned a moment ago, was being engaged by Samsonov on a fairly daily basis and retreating slowly to the west. Now on the left flank of the German 8th Army was our friend Mackensen again, who did not have so far to move as von Francois, but he moved in a southerly direction, away from Renenkampf and toward the right flank of Samsonov. And this area through which uh, Mackensen and his 17th Corps was fairly wooded and difficult for the Russian cavalry and reconnaissance to scout. And as a result, Mackensen crept up on the right flank of Samsonov fairly much undetected. To von Mackensen's right was the First Reserve Corps, which was commanded by another German general by the name of von Bello. Like Mackensen, he didn't have that far to move, but maneuvered generally south and southeast to come in on Mackensen's right and to the left of Schultz, a, a division uh, commanded by another general, von Morgan. So you had from left to right then Mackensen, von Bello, von Morgan, Schultz, and now Francois. All this transpired in the, a matter of a day or two using the rail networks and maximal road efficiency to position the German army essentially in a arc around the advancing Russian second army under Samsonov. Facing again from left to right on the Russian side, facing Francois, Schultz, von Morgan, and von Bello were four Russian corps, one commanded by Artumanov on the far left, which would be engaged by Francois and suffer the most devastating fate. To his right, the 23rd Corps, commanded by General Kondratovich. To his right, the 15th Corps, commanded by General Martos. And to his right, 
the 13th Corps, commanded by General Kluju. On the 25th and 26th of August, Francois completed his dispositions, and in particular, not only did he move in in front of the Russian 1st Corps, commanded by Artumanov, he actually maneuvered around Artumanov's left flank and began an enveloping maneuver that would bring parts of the German 1st Corps into the flank and rear areas of of Artumanov's 1st Corps. And it's probably a good idea for me to stop here and talk a little bit about military tactics, in particular the concept of an enveloping maneuver or turning the flank in a uh, military engagement. The battles we've already talked about at uh, earlier, including Gumbinin, were basically frontal attacks. Frontal attacks are considered basically a brawl in military thinking. Uh, it often involves high numbers of casualties and rarely results in any sort of decisive victory for either side. That was the case with Gumbinin. Both sides suffered fairly high casualties, and while the Germans were defeated and withdrew, the German 8th Army pulled away more or less intact and, as we have seen, was able to reorganize and spring back into action again. An enveloping attack, if successful, means that while the enemy army is fixed in, in front by a portion of your forces, other forces move around the flank of the enemy and even into the rear to prevent retreat and attack from behind or from the side, uh, which is usually very difficult to defend and almost always results in panic and attempts to retreat out of what space the enveloped army can find to escape complete destruction. If the envelopment is completely successful, it becomes an encircling move where there is no way out and the enemy army is usually compelled to either surrender or is just slaughtered. So when we're talking about von Francois on the 25th and 26th of August enveloping or maneuvering to envelop the Russian army, it means that he's moving around their flank and into their rear so that when the battle erupted in full force on the 27th of August, the Russian First Corps under Artumanov found itself attacked on its front and flanks and quickly thereafter even in the rear. And an entire Russian Corps basically disintegrated in a matter of hours. And when that Corps disintegrated and began to flee in panic and disorder, the Corps to its right, commanded by Kondratovich found itself also flanked and an encircling move underway, and that corps began to quickly disintegrate as well. And you get the idea. It's like dominoes falling. The same situation developed over this period of time on the German left flank, or the Russian right flank, with Mackensen and von Bello pushing south uh, against a Russian, a single Russian corps located in front of them, which again quickly collapsed and retreated. And while it wasn't encircled initially, it then caused the Russian 13th Corps under Kluju to be flanked and encircled. 
and in a matter of a couple of days, the Germans had annihilated four Russian corps and were in the process of chasing a retreating uh, Russian second army, which continued to disintegrate until it was essentially completely destroyed. This enveloping maneuver was so stunningly successful that Samsonov's second army was effectively destroyed. 92,000 Russian troops were captured by the Germans, and it's estimated that over 75,000 Russian soldiers were killed uh, or wounded, uh, and that only about 10,000 Russians escaped from the encircling movement that was completed by August the 29th. The Germans suffered about 12,000 casualties and also captured over 350 Russian guns, heavy artillery. The Russian commander Samsonov was so distraught by the loss of this army that he simply walked into the forest near Tannenberg and committed suicide on the 29th of August. So ended the Battle of Tannenberg. Now we've reached a point where we have covered what actually happened in the Battle of Tannenberg, and I'd like to talk now for a little bit about why it happened and why this turned out to be such a spectacular and unexpected triumph for Germany and a disaster for Russia. And then we'll conclude by considering what the short and long-term legacy of this battle was for the history of these two countries, but really for the history of the war and the world. I think Tannenberg exemplifies a number of military goals and attributes. Above all, the art or skill of deception. Sun Tzu, the great Chinese warrior general uh, in the second century BC, once uh, wrote in his magnum opus, The Art of War, that all war is based upon deception. And there's a lot of truth to that. Deception in battle and in war is probably one of the top five aspects of any successful military campaign. What was the deception in the Battle of Tannenberg? It was convincing the commander of the first Russian army, Renenkampf, that he was facing pretty much the entire German field army, the 8th Army, in front of him, when in fact he was only facing a very thin cavalry screen and some small garrisons around some of the East Prussian cities like Königsberg. The converse was true with Russia. The Russian forces did not engage in or use any real deception at all, sort of the arrogance of their sheer numbers and size caused them to really make no pretense about what their intentions were. One of the features of this we talked about, and that was the f discovery of plans of the Russian First Army on the body of a dead, rather low-ranking officer, which fell into the hands of the Germans. The Russians also broadcast to one another and back to their headquarters, General Jelinski, 
in the clear, as they would say. In other words, not encrypted and not coded. So German intelligence, which was never one of Germany's more astute services, but nonetheless, German intelligence had very little work to do to divine what Renenkampf and Samsonov were going to do in the immediate short term, because they broadcast to one another exactly what they intended to do. Another military virtue is swift and decisive movement. I'm going to read you another quote from Sun Tzu in his book, The Art of War. And it pretty much sums up, and it's interesting because Sun Tzu lived two centuries before Christ, uh, about the time that the Roman Empire was really just getting off the ground uh, in the West. And his profound insights into military thinking, strategy, and tactics is something that is still read to this day and is considered by most military thinkers and strategists to be as useful and as incisive today as it was over 2,200 years ago. In any event, Sun Tzu wrote this, What is valuable in military affairs is strength and advantage. What is done is sudden alteration of troop movements and deceitful stratagems. He who knows best how to manage an army is sudden in his movements. His plans are very deep laid and no one knows whence he may attack. And I think that's a very apt description of what happened at Tannenberg. Only one of the attributes of military strategy did the Russians have, and that was strength. We discussed that at the beginning, their overwhelming numbers and strength put the German Eighth Army at a great disadvantage. But in almost all other military affairs in this particular battle, the Germans had advantage. The sudden alteration of troop movements was what made the Battle of Tannenberg what it was in history. The sort of end-around play in which Francois' corps was moved all the way from the right flank of the Russian First Army way up in the north to the left flank of the Russian Second Army under Samsonov, much further to the south, was a sudden alteration of troop movements with a very deep-laid plan behind it. The Russians, to quote again from Sun Tzu, did not know from whence Hindenburg might attack and were completely surprised when he brought overwhelming force to the Second Army of General Samsonov. This quick and subtle maneuvering contributed to another military plus, and that is concentration of force at the critical point. And in this case, the combined force of Francois and Schultz's corps on the extreme left flank of Samsonov led to a cascade of successive routes and encirclement of his army. To put it another way, while the advantage went to the Russian army in sheer strength, the maneuvering by the 8th Army, and in particular concentrating force on the extreme left flank of the Russians, brought successive defeats to each Russian corps from left to right across their front, and 
a complete encirclement of that army and its annihilation. When there is great risk taken, great reward can follow, or disaster. In this case, the great risk that was taken by Hindenburg, leaving Rennenkampf a virtually unmolested opportunity to advance into East Prussia to Berlin, toward Berlin, uh, could have been a disaster, but he didn't move. Historians can ponder whether Hindenburg really had any choice but to take this great risk, and I don't think he did. I think we have to give Hindenburg, Ludendorff, and Colonel Hoffman great credit for having kept their composure and poise and executed a very risky plan beautifully in a matter of days without any hesitation, taking the one strategy available to them that could possibly bring victory. On the other hand, we have General Renenkampf. History has judged him very severely. Had he aggressively advanced, even due west, as was his intention, he probably would have wrecked the German battle plan and perhaps even placed himself between Hindenburg and Berlin, emerging behind Hindenburg while Hindenburg was engaged with Samsonov. The specter of that possibility haunted Ludendorff and Hindenburg, but in the event, Renenkampf really didn't move at all. He also could have moved to the southeast somewhat, taken some of the pressure off Samsonov by attacking Mackensen's and Bailo's corps, which were within his reach had he aggressively moved forward. But he didn't, and many people feel that that is the key to the Russian disaster at Tannenberg, and it's hard to argue with that. We don't really know why Renenkampf didn't advance aggressively in those critical days after the Battle of Gumbinen. Some people speculate that there was a personal antagonism between him and General Samsonov, which arose during the Russo-Japanese War about a decade earlier. Once again, Samsonov had accused Renenkampf of not coming to his aid or support in a battle during that war, and words exchanged between them had almost led to a duel. Fault also has to lie with General Jelinski, who, back at headquarters, did not coordinate the two field armies under his immediate command and prevent this disaster from happening either. He had overwhelming superiority in numbers, and it is almost unbelievable that these two armies could not have been better coordinated so as to bring that force to bear against the Germans and pretty much put them out of the war. A little historical tidbit all three of these generals died violently. We've already covered the fact that Samsonov committed suicide in the woods of East Prussia rather than return home and face the Tsar to explain how he had managed to lose an army of nearly a quarter of a million. Generals Renenkampf and Jelinski survived uh, this battle, of course, uh, but after the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917, both of them were eventually captured and executed by the communists. Now let's talk a little bit about the legacy of this battle, both short and long term. In the short term, after the annihilation of the Russian Second Army, the German Eighth Army turned to the north and began a series of attacks and an offensive against Renenkamp's First Army. Now this did not result in a 
rout and annihilation as had happened to Samsonov. Renenkampf's army was simply too big for that to have happened. But flushed with confidence and their victory over Renenkampf a few days earlier, the Germans used a very aggressive strategy of artillery and maneuver to bring concentrated force on Renenkampf's army again and again in a manner that caused Renenkampf eventually to conclude uh, that he needed to retreat, and he did. Uh, in the Battle of the Missourian Lakes, Renenkampf was defeated and withdrew from East Prussia back into Russia from whence he had come, although his army was largely intact and lived to fight again another day. The more profound legacy of Tannenberg was the failure of Russia to knock Germany out of the war in the opening weeks. This legacy would haunt Europe and particularly Russia in the years to come. The German offensive on the Western Front, in which most of their forces were engaged, eventually ground to a halt at the Battle of the Marne, and the Western Front became static or in a stalemate for almost the rest of the war. Germany was on the defensive, built extensive trenches from Switzerland to the English Channel, and held on for four years against repeated French and British attacks and assaults, undertaking very few offensives of its own because the Franco-British alliance had superiority in numbers, resources, reinforcements on the Western Front. However, the ingenious combination of trenches, artillery, machine guns, barbed wire, gas, and other tactical devices enabled the Germans basically to hold France and Britain at bay for four years and inflict terrible casualties on the Western Front. In the meantime, however, Germany transferred about half of its army to the Eastern Front in the waning months of 1914, and in 1915, in combination with Austria-Hungary, their ally to the south, began an immense offensive along the Eastern Front. The war in the East would rage until 1917. Germany and Austria-Hungary would eventually succeed in 1917 in breaking Russian resistance on the Western Front. Revolution broke out in March and again in October of 1917, and eventually Russia accepted a very harsh peace treaty, the, the, the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, and withdrew from the war. So the legacy of Tannenberg really was that it led to the ultimate defeat of Russia, and it led to four years of agonizing trench warfare on the Western Front in which millions of soldiers died. As a point of interest that Britain, France, and Italy lost more soldiers in the First World War than they did in the Second. So that gives you an idea of the magnitude of the appalling casualties that were incurred on the Western Front as a result of the failure to defeat Germany in the opening months of the war. And so that brings me to the conclusion of this very first podcast. I hope you've enjoyed 
a review of the Battle of Tannenberg, and I look forward to seeing you again in our next podcast. Once again, don't forget our website also at www.killingtimepodcast.com. Come visit us, comment on the podcast, tell us what you like, what you didn't like, and join in the fun. Thanks for listening.